The Thin End is pleased to be joined today by Perry Marshall. Perry has a background in electrical engineering and is a highly successful marketing and business consultant. But today we are talking to Perry about his interests in biology and in particular in evolution. Perry is the author of a groundbreaking book, Evolution 2.0, Breaking the Deadlock Between Darwin and Design. Perry, welcome to The Thin End. It's really an honor to be on The Thin End. You've had some extremely distinguished guests on your show, so to be on the list well, uh, makes my day. I'm you're really... another one, you're another one, and you're most welcome. I enjoyed reading your book. Uh, it is really a kind of a journey. Yes. I think it's a journey that we all should take. And so what I want to start with is to ask you this. How did your journey in this begin and why? You know, I should go back. I should rewind to before things that I even mention in the book. Um, I, I have this very clear memory um, and, and this is, some, I imagine probably a lot of your listeners are in Europe, Europe and the UK, and I don't even know if everybody's going to relate to this, because some of it's kind of an, uh, an American cultural thing. But, you know, I, I grew up in this super, super conservative uh, religious background, church, uh, super conservative church. And, and don't get me wrong, there's a lot of things that I really value about it. But, you know, sometimes conservative gets... A little heavy-handed, but we we they had the spe special speaker come in one time, and I think he came like for a whole week. So you're like every night you're going, and he's giving all these presentations. Well, it was a guy named John Whitcomb, who people in the creation evolution debate will know is one of the early pioneers of the young Earth creation movement, um, and so he gave this. Uh, really kind of extraordinary presentation about, you know, the earth is not millions of years old and you can't trust the carbon dating and Noah's Ark and like all this kind of stuff. And I'm pretty sure I was 14 and I was a science geek then. I mean, Ray, I probably, you were a science geek when you were 14. I mean, if, if you're a geek, like you, it, it, it comes on early. Right. And, and I ate it up. I thought it was great. And of course there was, it wasn't like there was any, you know, anybody really, you know, coming around disagreeing with us. And so you had this really nice, neatly packaged thing where, okay, you know, you read the Bible story and it all matches tit for tat and everything is great. And, um, and, and also like when I was seven years old, I got this dinosaur book and, you know, and it was, I, oh, I devoured the dinosaur book. Oh my goodness. Right. I love that thing. But you know, my teachers and stuff, they just said, well, you know, that 65 million years ago stuff, just kind of laugh at that. So you just kind of do. And, you know, I think there's a lot of people, they don't realize that, you know, you can have this alternative version of the world that somebody gave you. Um, and you just kind of live with the tension of everywhere else. Yeah. Um, and you just kind of deal with it and it's, it's not actually a big deal and it's not like you're some kind of a nut job or nut case, or I don't know what UK version word that you would use for a person like that, but no, like, um, you know, they're just sorting the columns of the world by a different spreadsheet than the other people. And, and so, but eventually you start like you start seeing that there's problems with this, right? Yep. You know, it's like, well, look, if, if light travels at the speed of light, and if that star is a hundred million light years away, then, then if you're going to try to say that the universe is 5,000 years old or 10,000 years old, like you actually have a real serious problem here. Um, so anyway, I, I don't want to dwell on that too long. And actually I let go of that pretty easily. Like, Oh, okay. Like the earth is much older than that. And like, you know, the Genesis story is telling you a little tiny bit of the picture. It's not giving you the whole picture. That's fine. No problem. Um, so no, no big deal. Um, but 
where it really kind of came crashing in and challenging my views was actually really comes down to teleology. Um, you know, when, when I was uh, an engineer, uh, I, I was in acoustics, and then later I was in digital networking. I would, I would get this magazine called Sensors Magazine, which is like every imaginable way that you could turn something going on out there into an electrical signal, which there is a lot. Like you're a doctor, right? <laughs> Yes. You know. And I was trained as a neuroscientist, and so I'm interested in the way in which things can be turned into electrical signals in relation to oh, yeah. transmission in the brain and so on. Oh, yeah. And it's, uh, it's transduction, like converting one energy into another and signals. I mean, you can, a world you can just get lost in. In fact, I wrote for that magazine for a period of time, in fact. Um, and I, I would look at stuff and I would go, look at how much of this stuff has been stolen from biology. And I would look at the hand of my end of the arm, my arm and I go, this is a fine piece of engineering. Like, yeah. you know, like I absolutely believe in a purposeful universe. So my brother, uh, I get in this argument with my brother and this argument has actually been going on for a couple of years. But it comes to a head. Uh, I'm visiting him in China. He had he'd been a missionary in China. He was getting ready to leave. He was done with that. He had come there as a Christian. He was leaving almost an atheist. He would he had thrown like almost everything he believed out the window. And now we're having another argument about this. And finally, I bring up science, which I hadn't brought up. And I said, "Dude, like look at the hand at the end of your arm. Like you don't think this is an accident, do you?" And he's like, whoa, wait a minute, hold on. And, and, and now I'm getting this standard neo-Darwinian explanation, random mutations, natural right. selection, all that. So okay? he, he swung right over. Yeah, he just the, like, he's like, he went. You and random and natural selections on, yes. Yep. He, Yep. So he went he went from young earth creationist, which I was no longer anymore, but he went from there all the way to the other side, just like boom. It was like going from, you know, conservative party to liberal party in like one fell swoop, right? And it was kind of shocking, but and but my engineering instincts are kicking in. I'm going, I've never seen any system in engineering work this way. I'm going, you know. I went to engineering school for five and a half years and they didn't bring up random mutation and natural selection once, mm -hmm. like not once. So like, and, but at the same time, I knew, I knew that a lot of biologists would sit there and nod their head. If they were in the, that van with us listening, there was a whole bunch of biologists that would sit there and they go, yep, that's how it works. And I'm like, so do I know something they don't know? Or do they know something I don't know? And and Ray, like that's what it came down to. Do do the engineers know something the biologists know? Do the yeah. biologists know something the engineers don't know? What is it? Well, I'll tell you, I didn't really actually start finding the answer to that question. It probably took it took at least two years before I even began to really get to the core of this. But meanwhile, I started I started putting pieces together. Um, now, Ray, I met you at the Royal Society meeting in November, and I'm sure we're going to talk about that. Yeah. And I would say my my description of that meeting was those two worlds actually coming together. Yes. In a very serious way. Yeah. Um, and like they are two completely different worlds, culturally and scientifically, and everything. Um, I think um, engineers approach everything prescriptively. How would you do this? How would you put this together? Where would you start? Where would it end? What part would go in first? What part would go in last? You, you try and reverse engineer it, basically. Right. Biologists look at stuff, and it's all descriptive. Um, it, it's, it's looking at where we're at like from, from the end point, looking back towards the beginning, and it's so they are looking at the worlds from completely opposite directions. And I think, Ray, 
like before we get into any other part of our discussion, I think like let's just recognize that they're trained to do completely different things, to look at things completely different ways. They're prone to talk past each other. It takes a lot of patience to have these discussions. And you, you have to be really careful not to demonize the other person because they're only giving you what, what they can see. Um, but I, I got to tell you, Ray, as I began to put this together and I began to find the puzzle pieces, um, it was really f- just astonishingly fascinating. And I said, I can't believe that more people don't know about this. I can't believe how buried this information is. Now, it's not as buried now. In fact, the Royal Society meeting was like the first major world conference where this stuff was front stage and center. But you go back 10 years when I first started discovering it. I mean, it was like nobody's talking about Barbara McClintock. And and it was like the world had just completely taken this other fork in the road and left the real science in the dust. And and uh, like I really think uh, in all I'm not. I'm not hyping this. I don't think this is is exaggeration. I think this is the biggest untold story it is. in science yeah. that there is. Yeah, it is, so. and it, and, it, and indeed it needs to be told. And you know, yeah, one of the great contributions to that, I think, is is your book, and I would certainly recommend that people uh, read it because, and and I think because you 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 really focus in on what I think the essence of the problem is, and you referred to it a moment ago in a sense, that the question, how can you get from totally random mutation, totally random events, to something which is clearly organised and is Mm -hmm. clearly also serving purposes, Serving purposes in a functional sense. My hand is shaped and functions in order to grip things, to manipulate, to touch, to rub things. It clearly does things that one can see in a purposeful way. So how do we get that from purely random mutation? And it seems to me that that's the essence of the problem that you're addressing in uh, Evolution 2.0. Yes, and and I think you have to answer that well um, in order to really understand biology. Um, I don't I don't think the the profession in general has has answered it very well at all. Um, actually, I don't think anybody's really answered it, and I think I think all of the big discoveries are still yet to come. I I think we're only at the foothills of what biology is really capable of understanding. You, you, can, um, only, you can only effectively um, research the right questions when you start asking different questions and are being asked. Them. At the moment, what we're trying to do is to build bottom-up, the, the idea yes. that things are, are, are genetically determined and therefore the answer lies in the gene. And you right. don't. What you do beautifully in your book is you see, and actually this is a a little bit where we part slight company, but you do make a clear point from an electrical engineering point of view that the the genetics is a a, a code which is then utilised by the system. And you ask a fundamental question there in the book, how, if that is a code, how did it come to be? Yeah. Because usually a code has a creator of a code. So, you know, so addressing that seems to me to be a crucial issue. Once you move away from the gene-centered view, you're still having to deal with that fundamental question. Right, right. And, and, and I've come to, I, I've learned a lot since the book went to press. Um, I don't feel the book is really out of date. But one, one thing that's become a lot clearer to me now than when I by the, than when I was writing the book, um, is is what you know your your brother Dennis Noble talks about is that there there is no privileged point of causation yes. in biology that it's all systems within systems within systems, um, and 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 so 
I think it, it actually is a mistake to think that, okay, you start with these genes mm. and then everything just builds up from there. Um, I am actually, I'm pretty sure based on what I've seen is that um, what, what organisms are really doing is they're really trying to maintain homeostasis. Precisely. And, and that everything flows from that activity. Yeah. Um, and so the epigenetics makes immediate modifications. It eventually gets turned into long-term uh, data storage. Uh, it's sort of like um, on your hard drive. Uh, does the hard drive build the computer or does the hard drive serve the computer? Um, I, I, I think if you, you don't want to carry those analogies too far, but at least as a first-order approximation, mm -hmm. I think that's a very good question for you to ask yourself. Is, you know, is the hard drive the be-all, end-all of the computer? Is, this, is it the starting point? I'm like, actually, I think it's more like the processor. Yes. Um, and, uh, and, and in the biology analogy, that is the cell itself doing the jobs that it does. And, of course, and, my, and, my, my computer... Even though, in in a hardware sense, it's pretty similar to yours, actually does function somewhat differently. It does so because it's got a different history. I've put things in yes. you haven't put in yours, and so on. And so it's That's right. doing different things, uh, and it learns, for example, what I want to search for, and so it will yes. search in preference for those kinds of things, and so on. And indeed, when you look at the whole of the internet, it's sort of based on this kind of principle, really, because it in the internet. Google and so on monitors what I do, and it makes um, it makes changes and adaptations to that. So, 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 so we've got this. Um, we've got a system, really. We've got to look at a system which, as you say, is homeostatic. It is, in a sense, seeking to maintain its integrity. To me, that's the definition of life. Yeah, yeah, and and I think it's very telling that if you put a hundred biologists in a room and you ask them to define life, they'll never be able to come up with a single definition. And there's something about it that's a, a little bit ineffable. Um, it's part of the problem is that we are biological. We don't have the ability to step completely outside of biology and somehow objectively, you know, that's not really possible. And so, and so we're trying to understand our own nature. Uh, there's something very wonderful and marvelous about it. And, you know, I, I, as I explored this topic, I became shocked and alarmed at the degree to which people were willing to just steamroll enormously complex questions, fascinating questions, very sophisticated issues, and just reduce them to literally random accident um, simply because they didn't understand them and they didn't, they, they weren't willing to admit that they don't understand. Like I, I, I think one blade of grass contains technology that's 10,000 times better has ever developed. Um, it, it, we could just go down to one single cell and it's doing more amazing things. Like if, if any company developed something like that from scratch, they would be billionaires overnight. And, and, and so we need to have a real humility before nature yeah. as opposed to a hubris. Um, one of my friends paid me one of the best compliments I think I've ever gotten. It just kind of bubbled up because because you know, Perry, most people write books about what they know. Your book, Evolution 2.0, is a book about what we don't know. Yes, exactly. And I, I had never really thought about that before, but I was like, yes, that's exactly right. Um, and what we don't know is so inspiring. I mean, my yeah. goodness. I mean, it's the, essence, like of, a, it, it, it's the essence of science. What is exciting about science is that you're really at the edge of what we know. You're always trying in science. Oh, yeah. Beyond. And I've always been puzzled by how I call it the locked in syndrome, how in relation to evolution, we've locked ourselves in as if there is no other view than 
random mutation, natural selection. Uh, and and the, this, what we're talking about is the fact that you've clearly got some kind of engineered system. Now, what one's not saying from that is that there is something outside the system that has engineered it. What we're saying is, how does the system engineer itself? Because that's clearly what organisms do. They, 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 they um, engineer themselves and maintain themselves. And part of that process of maintaining themselves is, of course, reproduction, that they reproduce themselves. And that is part of the process of maintaining integrity of the system. So we've locked ourselves in to, to this. I thought this was evident to some extent at that Royal Society meeting, um, that any concept outside that box is regarded as, oh, well, we've already known that. Uh, that was the fundamental answer, it seemed to me, from the neo-Darwinian position, is that, look, we've, we know this. We know that this is the case. We know that that's the case. We know there's epigenetics. We know there's transposition in genetics. We know that. Um, as if you can then completely dismiss all those fundamentals about genetics, even. I, I wish I could remember the quote, but, you know, I re there's some phrase floating around out there. It's it, it, it's like these stages of um, a new idea being accepted. And the first stages completely ignore you and then they fight you. And the last stage is, oh, we've known this all along. Um, and, and, and this is what you were actually seeing. Now, to, to, to be charitable, if um, I guess if you really got to ask yourself, well, what, what else can they do? It, it's not like they can show up and say, no, you're wrong. This stuff doesn't go on. Anybody with, you go to scholar.google.com and you type in epigenetics or you type in transposition and there's undeniable, well, you know, there seems to be about all 36,000 papers written about this. So <laughs> I think it's real. Um, you can't deny it, but, um, you know, so what, what are they going to do to save face? Um, and you know, I've, I've had a lot, I, in fact, I was uh, having uh, dinner with an, uh, several professors, uh, last week in Houston. And I asked, we were talking about this and, and we were talking about, okay, if you've done 20, 30 40 years of research based on a particular paradigm. What would happen if you said new paradigm, I'm actually throwing away a whole bunch of stuff, kind of starting over. And I asked all the guys at the table who all agreed that these guys need to trash the old paradigm and start over. I mean, we, I think we all knew, I said, have you ever seen that happen in academia anywhere? And most of they looked around and they were like, no, I can't say I ever have. And one guy said, you know, the closest thing most people can do is go, oh, you know what? I found this really interesting thing over here and I'm going to go like go down that rabbit hole and just kind of not pay attention to the previous career. But, you know, imagine building an entire career on a fundamentally wrong premise. You know, Richard Dawkins' selfish gene um, model is really like turds wrong. Um, it's a disaster. Yes. Um, and, 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 you know, uh, you're again, you know, Dennis Noble, he figured that out from heart research, from basic, he wasn't on some evolution quest. I think a lot of these kind of discoveries, they happen serendipitously. Somebody was looking for something else yeah. and they're like, Hey, wait a minute. This does not match the model that's in all the textbooks at all. Yes. So what do you do? Yes. I, I think that's right. And people get locked into the box for a variety of reasons. One reason is, of course, that if you try to step out of the box, it's terribly difficult as a scientist to get funded. Yeah. Uh, to think outside the box is something which is essential in science, but it's rare. And it's, it's hard to do. Largely because of the organization, the career structure, the massive need for big funding. You cannot step outside 
the genomics program. And that's one of the difficulties because mm. we've, we've, we've invested so much into the genome project. The idea that somehow or other this is the secret of life. It's the progenitor of everything. And if you can just understand that secret, we will be able to solve all the problems of, the, of, of biology and of medicine and so on. And that is a view that's held deeply. And if, as you say, if you challenge it, uh, you're really challenging the whole of the sort of edifice of science that's built in the last 30, 40, 50 years. And that's a hell of a lot to break down, which is why there's such a resistance to, to, to breaking it down. Even the tiniest bit of movement they don't like. Well, it's, it's very alluring to believe the things that the profession has adhered to. Uh, for the last 50 years. It's it's very alluring to believe that the gene-centered view is correct, and if we just understood all the DNA, that it would explain everything. And it's it's very alluring um, to believe that, oh, you know, it's just statistical mechanics and these random things would eventually, um, and, and that now we don't have to ask any more questions about God or anything else. It's really convenient. Unfortunately, it's a problem now, as a marketing person and as a business consultant, I mean, I, I've consulted in 300 industries. Uh, um, uh, I mean, I was I was consulting with a Fortune 500 company two weeks ago, uh, although mostly I work with smaller companies. And and I, I can tell you this: if I've seen this again and again and again. Because look, all all humans, all industries, all professions have the same problem. It's not unique to science. Um, it's, it's also true if you're in medicine. It's also true if you're a librarian. It's also true if, if you work in a city government somewhere, is that you can resist change, but if, if you're building on a wrong foundation and you resist the change, eventually it will smack you in the head. And, and the most recent example of this is what happened to the taxi industry with Uber. You know, I I I um I was uh, I was in a limo once, and um we were I was I, I said so what do you what do you think about Uber? This was two or three years ago, and of course, well, they, they, it was like oh those and they start cussing a little bit, you know. All those bastards, you know, they're, they're eroding our fare structure and everything. But actually, the guy, the, the guy says, look, he goes, I've been in the limousine industry for 20 years. And he says, I know for a fact that the technology for matching a rider to a ride dynamically has been around for at least 20 years because it came from other parts of the shipping industry. And he goes, the taxi industry could have adopted this a long time ago. They didn't. They were they were lazy. Well, Uber has decimated the taxi business. Uh, I mean, it has just come through like a wrecking ball. And like in 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 Chicago, um, cab medallions used to sell for like two or three hundred thousand dollars, and now they're like worthless. Um, and you know, like you don't you don't want that to happen to you as a scientist, but then. When you embrace a new paradigm, there's always a benefit. And now the, the benefit in the case of Uber is people are taking Ubers everywhere. In fact, Uber could replace, like I could foresee 10 or 20 years from now where it's all self-driving cars and people don't even buy a car anymore. They just open their phone and yes. two minutes later a self-driving car comes by and you don't buy insurance from the local car insurance guy. And now this, this benefits society. I mean, downtown Chicago, parking's expensive. Oh, I'll take an Uber and I'll read a book on, on the way. Um, and it's easier and it's cheaper and it's great. Well, it's not great if you owned a taxi, but it's great for everybody else. I, so so to co complete the thought, Ray, the extended synthesis and all the stuff, you know, the epigenetics and 
All that stuff is extremely practical. It's extremely useful. It's extremely important. You know, there's there's a song that says illusions are painfully shattered right where discovery starts. Yeah. And I would, you know, people, this is going to make people uncomfortable. If you're a scientist, it can make you uncomfortable purely because of the funding issues. If you're a regular person, it can make you uncomfortable because suddenly, you know, you've got a bunch of philosophical and religious issues that you thought were put to bed that really aren't put to bed at all. Like, well, you know, reality is your friend. You know, the truth is your friend. Like, whatever the truth is, just pursue it. And, you know, when I started this, I was scared to death that I was going to have to completely re- revise all of my beliefs. And I just decided, you know what, I'm willing to. If if this journey proves to me that everything I believed is in my life is wrong, I'm willing to go there. Um, I don't think I would have discovered what I discovered had I not been willing to do that. Um, I decided to make this evolution beast my friend. Well, this it didn't it didn't take away my spiritual beliefs at all. It it confirmed that we live in a really an amazing universe and there's like a lot of questions that we still need to ask. Absolutely. And so I just I just want to honor anybody who man, this is kind of weird. This is kind of scary. Well, it's okay. It'll be all right. I like actually the way yes. I like actually the way you deal with um uh, stories in the Bible. I mean, one of them, of course, is Genesis, and you you really see that as being um, a sort of an early cosmology. Um, yeah, and you know, look, there's a lot of really intelligent and thoughtful discussion around this in the Christian community, um, and and you, you have to understand Christianity is a historical religion. Like Hinduism isn't particularly historical religion, for example. A lot of the, a lot of the things that that they embrace are not particularly connected to this person, this time, this place. But look, like if Jesus didn't exist, then Christians are wrong, you know. And if if there was no Moses in the wilderness, then Christians are wrong. And and you know, and Christians and Jews will re- readily. So, okay, so what do we do with Genesis? Um, Well, I think the really simple answer is, well, it's not giving you the whole picture. It's giving you a little slice. Uh, So, like, this might be way beyond the scope of this podcast. I think there really was a guy named Adam. There's a – I've got a friend named – uh, Richard Fisher, who wrote a book called Historical Genesis from Adam to Abraham, and he's an expert on Mesopotamia. And he's like, look, they've they've got stone carvings talking about this guy, Adam, but he wasn't the first human. Mm. He was the first Semitic person. Mm. Um, and, and so it's like, oh, okay. And so it's sort of like, you know, to a Christian or to a religious, and this is particularly true, this is very American. Like, this is almost like a non-issue in the UK. But believe me, it's a big issue here. Yes. Um, even even now, like right now, um, it's like, it's like you've got the story and you've been holding it like this close to your eye where you can't even see anything else. Like, Okay, just hold that out a lot farther and realize you have to recontextualize this story. It it doesn't it doesn't take a wrecking ball to the Judeo Christian belief system. It just puts it in a much much wider context. Mm. And see, that's that's what I think people people are so afraid. Mm. The atheists are terrified. The creationists are ter- yep. they're so scared. Yep. It's like, do not be afraid of this. I had a, yeah. I had a homeschool group, like super conservative Christian homeschool group. They invited me to give this presentation, and and the day before, the the ladies getting all these calls. What is he gonna do? What are they gonna talk about? All these people showed up, and you could tell some of them were like, "What's he gonna do?" Yes. yes. By by the end of it, they were like, "Wow! Oh my word!" Nobody told me this. I didn't. 
I didn't know this could evolve in this in like three days. I didn't know this could evolve into this in three months or three years or 30 years. I didn't know about all those experiments. How come nobody told me about this? Wow, this is amazing. The parents sat in a circle and they hammered me with questions for two more hours after a two hour yeah. presentation. Yeah. Until it was like 10 o'clock. Everyone's like, I really have to go to work tomorrow. Ray, like people, if, if people only knew, oh my goodness. So I've been talking a long time. Back to you. No, that's good. That's good. <laughs> it's very good. I enjoyed listening to what you're saying. Uh, and I think that you're addressing some key problems that we have in moving the story forward, which is how people do lock themselves in to a, a, a perceived view, a particular view. And it, 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 it's, it's, and it's curious in a way, because I've discussed this in other podcasts, um, how it can be that even science can become dogmatic. And oh, it yes. can do so in a way for a whole variety of reasons, but one of them you, you've touched on in a way. They are afraid in evolutionary sense. They're afraid of letting in other ideas, such as God or whatever it is. And, of course, it yeah. doesn't... It, 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 Introducing purpose into evolution doesn't introduce God. It doesn't necessarily exclude it, but it isn't in itself introducing. By saying that something is purposeful, what one's really saying is that it is within a particular context functional and that you can only understand the evolution of that particular characteristic by understanding its function and that that evolution is iterative it isn't just simply random chance. Right. What it is is a system uh, responding to environmental change, and um, and 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 uh, as it were, re iter in a in a kind of um, an exchange with the environment. In a sense, uh, it is responding, and it's sort of saying, "Is this the right approach? Is that a right a right approach? Does this help? Does that help?" One of the things that you address in your book, I think, is exactly that. How could you possibly get useful things out of a random mutation? And I think you address that to some extent as a from your electrical engineering background that right. How could that possibly be that you would end up with that without something in the system that was working as it were as a template for those mutations, even if one accepted, which I'm willing to do, that there are, is random mutation going on, how is that contained within a living system so that the living system doesn't essentially destroy itself? Because if you just left, left random mutation to itself, that's exactly what would end up having. Uh, happening, uh, you, you know, the system would end up destroying itself because of these random mutations. And so something is maintaining the integrity of the system. And that includes also maintaining the integrity of the genetic code, as you would see it, uh, and so on. So, um, yeah, I go back to that. You address that to some extent in your book, don't you? Yes. And and um, look, there's there are elements of randomness in every system. What what doesn't exist in like in electrical engineering, the concept of turning pure randomness into information it it doesn't exist. It's it, it it. But here's what does exist. What does exist is is systems have constraints. Yeah. Um. You know, if you if you are designing an automobile, you're working within constraints. Um. You know, if you're if you're a, a poet and somebody says, well, write me a poet, a, a poem in iambic pentameter, they're giving you constraints exactly for your system. And so there are elements of of randomness, but living things are internally directed. Now, the truth is, we don't know how or why or the extent to which I mean, we We've only scratched the surface, but the fact is, is they are. And if I if I put bacteria in a petri dish and I I starve them and I put some chemical that they think maybe they can digest, they'll go into hypermutation until one of them figures out how to do it. And I I think I think biological evolution is very very similar to the evolution of human technology, um, including punctuated equilibrium 
Um, and so like, so think about it. So you've got, you've got LP albums for a long time and they, they gradually improve. And then all of a sudden there's CDs, right? And there's this leap and all of a sudden, boom, here they are. Cambrian explosion, Sony and Phillips develop it. And then it, and then it's there. Right. And then, and then it's MP3 players, and then it's what you know, streaming music or what, you know, and and it it goes like that. And 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 of course, having worked in companies and consulted and everything, you know, people struggling mightily to come up with different things, and most of the things they come up with fail. The Sony Mini Disc failed, mm-hmm. right? There's all these. You know, the eight track only lasted for a while and it went extinct and the cassette went extinct. Right. Um, I think living things evolve in a very, very similar way. So really, if you understand the evolution of jazz or if you understand the evolution of politics or anything like that, you actually understand evolution better than you even realize yeah. It's 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 all obeying a very similar set of rules. It always strikes me as odd too that um, biologists are perfectly willing to accept the fact um, that organisms are responsive to their environment, but always want to exclude a major organis- organism function, which is evolution, out of that. In other words, the one thing that would maintain existence over over decades, over year, centuries, over thousands of years, is the one thing that they want to exclude from that, which is a responsiveness to the environment in terms of change, that you, you change in response to environmental stress, that there's something within the system that, as it were, engineers that change. That doesn't mean that it's always successful. Otherwise, mm. they'll have no. to... It doesn't always not always successful, um, but uh, it, we we maintain our integrity by continuously changing. That's right. That's right. And um, so, if you can accept that living things are intrinsically teleological, I mean, I, I was like the JBS Haldane quote: "Teleology is like a mistress to a biologist. He can't live without her, but he doesn't want anybody to know." That's right. Um, it's 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 like that. Like well, so yes, when you acknowledge that all living things are teleological, you do have this. You do have this fundamental ultimate origins kind of question. Well, where did the origin of life come from? Well, yep. Yep. Well, we haven't answered that question yet. Um, and, uh, and where, where I come in, you know, for a long time, I was like, let's call it a young, an old earth creationist, you know, after I was a young earth creationist, but then I, I, I became persuaded that that evolution, you know, there's plenty of evidence for it and, and that you can reproduce it in the lab. Well, as as I made those discoveries, the universe just continued to get more fascinating than it had been before. You know, back when I thought that cats and dogs had to be created as unique special species, like, well, that's a universe of a certain amount of capacity. And now we find out, oh, you know, the universe has much more capacity than that. That doesn't take away the ultimate questions. It really just raises the stakes. But what it does in the present is it gives you more to discover. Yeah. And this this is the spirit of the original scientists. You go back to Newton and Copernicus, Copernicus and Galileo. And all these guys were deeply religious guys, but they looked at it. They didn't see a universe like, okay, so Newton, Newton reduces all of gravity and astronomy to Newton's laws and calculus, which is amazing. It's an enormous simplification that didn't take anything away from God. I mean, come on. <laughs> right. And so there, there doesn't need to be a conflict here. There isn't no, a I conflict think I, between nature yes, yes. And, and, and the ineffable ultimate questions. Yeah. That, that is the fun, one of the fundamental messages of your book. And it's, of course, why you say breaking the deadlock between Darwin and design. 
Uh, and um, it, it's also true, to be fair to Darwin in this, of course, that yes. he didn't see that there was necessarily any conflict between the concept of God and evolution, as, as he would see it. It, it, it seems to me that in, in, it's the modern synthesis, the modern, the, the neo-Darwinian position, which has locked itself into trying to take out any teleological explanation, any idea that the system as a whole could react. Um, right. The idea, you see, you know, we, we, we tend to sort of see um, organisms as sort of isolated individual bits operating within an environment. I don't mm-hmm. see it like that. What I see are organisms as being part of the environment in which they operate in. So we saw it. Yes. Uh, a royal society meeting that they're they're not only operating within an environment they are also creating an environment in which they operate uh they they are sometimes doing that by being social creatures interacting with each other so there's a psychosocial environment that is also there which they react within and they can pass information on from generation to generation in that social cultural environment through that cultural means. So there's a whole variety of ways in which information gets transmitted from one generation to another. That is ignored at its peril by those seeking to answer the question about evolution because it seems to me clear that one of the fundamentals that can happen in things like speciation is behavioural change. Mm. Not just simply changes in structure, but behavioural change. That that behavioural change might lead two parts of a population to get, as it were, further apart in terms of their characteristics. So that one particular group, for example, because of their behaviour, will tend to mate with those of similar behaviour, similar patterns and so on. So it seems to me that pattern behaviour is extremely important in understanding how evolution of species when you when people talk about the near the the, the modern synthesis they very rarely talk about how do we get speciation they're simply (laughs) they don't they don't address it 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 seemed to me one of the one of the the strange things about that royal society meeting um was when the neo-darwinists present um really couldn't understand that question of how do you get speciation from this random mutation natural selection model because any kind of random mutation that they're talking about would be just simply absorbed and buffered within the population there'd be no reason why you could get different species evolve out of that so to so you so they want to ignore i i loved the bits in that royal society meeting for example about whales communicating with each other i loved the bits when they looked at the chimpanzees you know transferring information from one generation to another they even then looked at it in terms of bees and ants and so on that there is a there, there are a whole variety of ways in which information can get transmitted from one generation to another, which changes the way they behave in their environment. But also they are creating that niche creation. Uh, the, the, you know, it, it, it's, it's very strange that all these things, which are so essential to any kind of directed change, directed change would be, how do I maintain myself in this environment? I can maintain myself better by changing the environment. We are learning that as human beings. We look at what's happening to our environment. I I call it the awakening earth. Mm. There is this wonderful living creature called the earth. And you look at it and you think it's just waking up. Now, the question is whether it's waking up in time. You know, because we change our environment by our action. We can understand that we do that because now we can see the consequences of it. We are conscious, and consciousness is part of our evolution too. And that turn will, you know, this is this is a continuous process. This whole evolutionary thing. The big question to us is whether we can now, having got the ability to change our environment in the way that we are, whether we can do that in a way that enhances our survival, enhances the survival of the ecosystem, and so on. We are now consciously evolving. Well, if we can let go 
of misconceptions that we know are misconceptions and embrace new discoveries, I think we can make it around that curve. Yes. Or, you know, we can live in denial and we can be like the taxi industry, which is in a lot of pain. Uh, it's on the verge of extinction. Right. And, and so, I mean, it, it, you know, how much ego are we going to invest in our previous beliefs versus can we just take a breath, you know, calm ourselves down a little bit. Let's just embrace if, uh, when I was, when I was in the midst of this, this thicket of questions, I just decided here's, here's the policy. I will ignore no verifiable fact. I'll put it on the chalkboard. And if I don't know what to do with it, I'll just leave it there, but I'm not going to erase it just because I don't like it. No. Perry Marshall. Thank you very much for being with us. Ray Noble. Thank you very much for a wonderful conversation. I, I really um, it's, it's really been wonderful to get to know a lot of people in your sphere, a lot of the scientists. Um, I mean, uh, you know, people, people like Dennis Noble, people like Ava Jablanka, Dr. Shapiro, um, lots of, uh, Jim, Jim McAllister, um, lots of just fascinating individuals, working on very important questions. And look, I, I really think that this group of people is doing some of the most important work in science. Yeah. And it's going, it's going to reverberate for a very long time. It is a very worthwhile endeavor. And I just, I'm very um, indebted to the people, you know, Lynn Margulis and people of that nature who, worked very hard to push their ideas uh, with a lot more resistance than they're getting now. Yeah, absolutely right. And uh, as I once said at the end of one of my other podcasts, evolution is too important to leave to the evolutionists. Oh, my goodness, yes. It is, look, evolution is for everybody. Um, any, any thinking person, any innovative person, any artist, any engineer, any doctor, it, any environmentalist, any anybody, it affects all of us. It, it it's not something to be protected from the masses. No, like we need, you know. There's probably there's probably nine year old kids in Montessori school that you know two years from now are going to make some giant discovery or contribution, and we need it. No, absolutely right. Amen. Yes. Preach your brother. <laughs> With amen, we'll say that's the end of the podcast. Thank you very much. <laughs>